Welcome to The Lover's Hole, where we're reading the Aubrey Matron books of Patrick O'Brien. Many of you rereading, some of you, we hope, reading perhaps for the first time. And with that in mind, you're with Mike. And you're with Ian. And we are starting up Chapter 5 in our Slow Down read-through of Master and Commander. Ian, catch us up on Chapter 4 and what we're looking forward to this time. My pleasure, Mike. Um, Last time, Jack, who's shaking down the crew of his new vessel, the Sophie, he had his gunnery practice interrupted when a part of the convoy, this Norwegian cat that they were escorting, was taken by a galley. And Jack and Lieutenant Dillon and the brig Sophie and her crew all kind of grew and developed together as a crew as they went into action. Um, They had stopped chasing the galley, to go back and attend to the rest of the convoy, um, not entirely to everyone's satisfaction, as we're going to hear shortly. Jack realized that he had his old childhood friend, Queenie, to thank for his promotion and for this cruise that he's been given by his commander-in-chief, the still virile Admiral Keith. The members of the gun room had celebrated the beginning of the cruise and they'd celebrated Stephen Maturin's appointment as surgeon. That was last time. This time, we're going to get into the log of Sophie, and that log is going to promise us already the first prize and maybe more. There's going to be an apocalyptic blow. There's going to be a brush with the plague. Jack's going to get a chance to prove himself once more. We're going to get some scatological humor. And Mike, who's going to be the butt of all these jokes, I wonder? (laughs) We're going to have labor and delivery amongst the gunpowder. We're going to have a look back at a famous uprising and a chance for Stephen Maturin and James Dillon to get to know one another better. Maybe. So, Mike, we know that this chapter is going to take a lot of interest in in, in logs and documents and documentation. We start out already in the log of the Sophie, right? We do. We do. You know, and and it's it's one of those great uh, O'Brien techniques. He's going to lift words right from, I'm sure, actual logs from actual ships and and put them right into our story. So he starts chapter five by saying, the fair copy of the Sophie's log was written out in David Richard's unusually beautiful copper plate. But in all other respects, it was just like every other log book in the service. Its tone of semi-literate, official, righteous dullness never varied. It spoke of the opening of Beef Cast number 271 and the death of the Loblolly boy in exactly the same voice. And it never deviated into human prose, even for the taking of the sloop's first prize. So we have in a couple of things here. One, you know, for uh, it's a pretty not just foreshadowing, but hey, why, what, there's going to be a prize. Oh my gosh! And yeah. O'Brien's got us right there. Not only with I'm sure what he read, as we said in a log, but copper plate, uh, probably familiar to you, but a new one for me. Well, I don't know about familiar, but it's certainly a name that took me back. To, to what was going on in my education. So I, I belonged to a generation that was being taught to write back in the very early 70s. And 
copper plate was kind of my parents' generation, kind of the the the, the fancy way of writing. This very sloped, looped, italic, cursive script where I think it descends from the days when you would always write with a fountain pen or a, a, a pen dipped in liquid ink. And to get a smooth script, you had to keep your pen gliding along the page. So copper plate is this very beautiful italicized script. Um, by the time the 70s came along and experiment and education was rife, including with writing and reading, uh, we were all taught um, to write in a more upright, more kind of plain italic way. And it was okay to lift the pen off the page. And we were probably therefore writing with ballpoint pens rather than with fountain pens. But this copper plate is still, if you go back and read old documents, read, you know, registers of birth, marriages and deaths dating back to the 40s, 50s and 60s, you'd still see people writing officially in this beautiful kind of looped style of writing here. I love the fact, as you say, Mike, that we've got this spoiler already in this log saying we're going to have this first prize. So um, in true O'Brien style, though, we're going to have to wait. And instead of getting straight on and telling us about this blooming prize, um, we pick up on this remark of ditto weather that is mentioned in the log entry. And that brings us back to the fact that it's Sunday. And we've got this picture that O'Brien paints for us of the veteran seamen taking care of themselves and each other. They're combing out and plaiting up their long hair. He talks about them looking like ancient oracles. And they're practicing a little bit, as sailors like to do, on the landsmen. They're pointing out to the landsmen what he calls the livid, purple, tumescent, deeply cloud-banked western sky where the sun is sinking and talking about what it portends. Mike, um, tumescent is a good signature word for O'Brien. Uh, it's it's a sexually provocative way of talking about the, uh, the, the, the swollen and engorged, and you might say sexually aroused-looking um, skyline. Mm, okay. Um, the strange sticky heat that comes from the sky and from the glassy sea, he says, the swell that comes from the south and the east mean, in the words of the text, a coming dissolution of all natural bonds, an apocalyptic upheaval, a right dirty night ahead. And as, as well as winding up the landsmen who've never been through a storm, I think he's also winding us up to expect a bit more of this kind of salacious, saucy imagery as we get on through the chapter here. Yeah, and this so I, I can see these landsmen, you know, listening to all these sailors here. And and they're already a little bit low, a bit on edge because of this unnatural death of the loblolly boy. The, the log was very succinct in mentioning it, but Henry Gouges, we're told, had announced his 50th birthday to his mates and sitting there at the table holding his grog immediately died as soon as he said it as O'Brien tells us, with his untasted grog in his hand. And it was just that morning, that Sunday morning, that he'd been buried at sea. Just as the sailors had predicted, the storm starts at the end of the last dog watch. So we're, you know, we're about eight in the evening now. But yeah. by four in the morning, it's exceeding all the sailors' exaggerations. O'Brien writes, the men at the wheel had to hold their heads down and cup their mouths sideways to breathe. But the Sophie handles it really well. And in the midst of these steep, tall rollers, uh, O'Brien writes that the Sophie, with her top gallant mast struck down on deck, her guns double breached, and her hatches battened down, leaving only a little screened way to the after ladder. And with a hundred miles of sea room under her lee, she lay as snug and unconcerned as a eider duck. <laughs> 
it's a lovely image, isn't it? First of all, of the of the Sophie kind of bobbing up and down on the wave is like a like a duck just kind of taking it all in its stride. Uh, the eider duck, very, a very common species of duck in Europe, uh, famous for most of us who can remember when quilts were called eider downs, um, famous for having its feathers, its breast feathers, used as a stuffing for pillows and quilts, and probably not an accidental reference for O'Brien, the first ever species of bird to be protected by law, um, a law written by that famous Northumbrian saint, St. Cuthbert, back in the year 676. Hey, Mike, those were the days, eh? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> So as as the Sophie's riding the waves, Jack is watching her, his arm around a backstay. By the way, this image of Jack with his arm hooked around a stay enjoying the weather. We get that quite a few times in the Peter Weir movie as well. The text says his streaming yellow hair, which he wore loose and long as a tribute to Lord Nelson, stood straight out behind him at the top of each wave and sank in the troughs in between great image of Jack really, really enjoying this weather. He's really pleased with the way the ship is handling herself in the storm. And he turns and tells Stephen in this very offhand kind of sailorish way, the ship is remarkably dry. And this is a a complete non sequitur for Stephen. How can you describe anything in the world as dry, given the the storm that we've just sailed through? Um, Unlike the Sophie, unlike her captain, unlike her crew, the surgeon is not handling this weather very well. Uh, But Stephen says, Stephen, who preferring to die in the open, had crept up on deck, had been made fast to a stanchion and now stood mute, sodden, and appalled. Oh, my poor Stephen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lashed to this stanchion in the midst of this incredible rain, and Jack is hollering, it's remarkably dry. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen is sure he's making fun of him, I, 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 I have to think. <laughs> yeah. Well, Stephen's much happier in the morning when the storm is over and and the sky is washed so clean that he can see the color of the petrol's feet following the ship. So birds, I can see them in detail. Stephen's a happy lad. And speaking out loud, Stephen says, I remember the fact of extreme prostrating terror. And he's kind of keeping his eye on the bird. He says, but the inward nature of the emotion now escapes me. Now, he's standing there on deck. There are two men by the wheel, and they're, they're kind of disturbed hearing Stephen talk about this. You know, this is probably a very unlucky thing to be bringing this back up. And then, oh my gosh, you know, heaven forbid, Stephen starts to compare this experience to a woman's experience in childbirth. And O'Brien writes, the man at the wheel and the quartermaster looked hastily away from one another. This was terrible. Anybody might hear. The Sophie surgeon... <laughs> The opener in broad daylight and upon the entrance main deck of the gunner's brain pan, Lazarus Day, as he was now called, was much prized. That is, Stephen, much prized. But there was no telling how far he might go in impropriety. And luckily, (laughs) a serendipitous sighted sail stopped Stephen's soliloquy suddenly. Oh, bravo. Good work. <laughs> Let's try that seven times fast. I'm sure we'll get an outtake there. <laughs> Sorry, I got carried away with my alliteration. No, love it. Absolutely love it. Um, great bit of humor of the perplexed view that the 
sailors have of Stephen and just how much bad luck he might be calling down by going further and further into this comparison. It's a really interesting response to fear as well. Just to sort of highlight, there's a little bit of psychology going on here. We've talked right. all along about how this book is about O'Brien's perception of ships as the uh, as the behavioral analysis lab. Um, almost, you might call the textbook definition of being free from mental trauma is if you can recall the emotion of a traumatic event and not be overwhelmed by reliving it. And actually, to be able to distinguish the emotion itself from the recollection of it is, you might say, if you're a psychologist, a sign of good mental health, at least on Stephen's part. Right. So Stephen is well-adjusted for now. Not sure about all the members of the crew. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, the, the ship that they've sighted on the horizon now is a felucca. A felucca with sails flying and no one at the tiller. Sails flying is taken as a signal of distress. No one at the tiller. Something's wrong. Um, a felucca is a small vessel often propelled by oars and also by one or more Latin sails um, or by both. Feluccas are a really, really common design of Mediterranean working boat. There are big two and three-masted feluccas with these Latin sails that you often associate with the Middle East. There are small single-masted feluccas and big enough for a handful of fish- fishermen. Patrick O'Brien, as he looked out across the harbour in Collier, would have seen. And, and we can see to this day, if you go to Collier and harbours like it, historic harbours in the Mediterranean, you'll see these feluccas, these little fishing boats with a single sloping Latin mast. So and we'll, we'll post out some pictures on the socials when we get around to it of some current day feluccas uh, for us to look at. And Babington, our good friend Babington, is gleefully announcing the ghoulish news that there's a body visible on the deck of this felucca. Stephen spots a further body and says straight away that they have died of the plague. The closer they get, they can see more dead bodies. And Stephen very naturally says, right, I'm going to make up a bag. I'm going to ask to be taken across there. And I'm going to go and treat any survivors. I'm like, this is an important moment that we'll talk about in a second. But right right now, it, it everybody's understood what we have to do and what's going to happen next has always been kind of clear, I think. But now... Stephen has to learn that what he sees as the natural next course of events is not what the ship and not what Jack sees as the course of events. Jack puts him down very politely, but very firmly. My dear sir, I'm afraid you must not insist or protest. It is mutiny, you know, and you would be obliged to be hanged was you to set foot in that felucca, even if you did not bring back the contagion, we should have to fly the yellow flag at Mahon. And you know what that means? And Stephen replies, you mean to sail directly away from that ship, giving it no assistance? Yes, sir, is the reply. Upon your own head, then. Certainly. <laughs> Comes back, Jack. And this is another one of these kind of first of many moments, I think, Mike. The first of many times in the canon where Jack's adherence to military service and naval priorities collides with Stephen's desire to, to follow causes. Uh, sometimes scientific discovery, in this case, humanitarianism and it doesn't seem to be a terribly big deal o'brien lets jack win the argument pretty pretty much flat out stephen doesn't really get to put his case although in reported speech we kind of reading between the lines we learn that he must have put it with some vehemence Um, a few paragraphs later we learn that he had shaken his fist at jack Um, the the text says the log took little notice of this it could scarcely have found any appropriate official language for saying that the Sophie's surgeon shook his fist at the Sophie's captain, which, by
by the way, is a hanging offence. Right. In any case, it shuffled the whole thing off with the disingenuous spoke filoka and quarter past 11 tact. For it was eager, says O'Brien, to come to the happiest entry it had made for years. So, Mike, we're getting a bit of a drum roll here towards what's coming up in the log here. We've had this clash of Jack's service priority and Stephen's humanitarian priority. Uh, we, we'll have to set aside the fact that this, you know, this is really the first conflict that's arisen in this otherwise natural and good-natured friendship between Stephen and Jack. Maybe Stephen is just going to have to learn this. This is one more thing for him to learn besides all the naval jargon and all the hierarchies. He's just going to have to learn that that's how it is. Or maybe we're going to have to come back to these two different causes, these two different kind of propelling forces that are driving these two different characters, Jack and Stephen. It's interesting that the crew were really scared. <laughs> Stephen wasn't scared at all about going across the hill. That's his natural kind of caregiving priority. The crew had been scared. Um, they had seen this tame African uh, Jeanette. I think that's how you pronounce it, a, a, a civet a bit like a cat. Um, and the idea that that might jump across and carry the plague across the Sophie had absolutely terrified the crew. No such fear for Stephen. But Mike, let, let, let's hold that off for later. Let, let's talk about this really happy log entry that's coming here. Yeah, well, and, and I, I love this. And as you say, you know, we're going to see these conflicts between Stephen and Jack. And, and part of this, one of those causes that comes up sometimes is Stephen as that rational enlightenment man. Jack as a little foot in both worlds of the enlightenment and thinking and the superstition of Navy yeah. and the tradition. And his realize, you know, what he tells Stephen there, look, if you went across and came back, even if you didn't have the plague, half of our crew would die. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, the African shaman or something, you know, kind of you know, the witch doctor yeah. putting the curse and boom, your brain uh, Kills you so, and we're going to see this superstition thing throughout the canon, and in a fascinating way. But as you say, let's go back to the happiest log entry, and and they start with the sight of another sail, the long promised prize now, and and you know we get a little backstory that the crew under Captain Allen had not taken a prize. As a matter of fact. Alan had gotten cruises and they'd never even seen a prize. You know, O'Brien tells us that the oceans had just emptied before them. So almost straight away, um, they sight another potential target, a Palaka. Um, you know, this ship with kind of one piece mass, not separate top mass. And, and we get a really nice account of how successfully Jack has set up the Sophie and himself for prize chasing. So now he calls upon this nice, big, square mainsail, and they can start to keep up with this Palaka and keep it in sight. And with the help of Jack's navigation and seamanship, you know, they, you know, they unfortunately lose her in the twilight and the darkness. But Jack, um, you know, Jack really comes to the fore here. It's kind of, you know, watching this whole chase here, Ian, that, you know, at one point, O'Brien always tells us kind of can feel the ship, can kind of see the ship. And he realizes that she's being pressed down. And so he gives this order in the midst of them chasing as fast as they can to take in the main royal as they're chasing. And and O'Brien had written, rarely had uh, he given an order more reluctantly obeyed. So the crew is like, what's the matter? You know, are you crazy in their minds? But when the sail comes down, the Sophie picks up speed. Jack's right. Now it's starting to get dark. They can't see the chase. And, you know, 
O'Brien tells us that Jack takes advantage of the blessed inviolability of a captain. This fact that they cannot disturb the captain when he's on his part of the quarterdeck. Jack really needs this solitude now to think. It's not just pretentious. It's not just, you know, this kind of accoutrement of rank. It's saying Mm. he wants to be there in touch with the Sophie, the sea, remembering every detail of the chase. And and O'Brien writes that the Placa had either altered its course or would do so presently. The question was, that is the question for Jack, where would the new course bring her to by dawn? So when they can see her again, are they going to be near her or far away? And Jack's thinking, well, you know, it all depends. Is she French or Spanish? Is she homeward or outward bound? Is the captain cunning or simple? And her sailing qualities. And he's got, you know, he's been watching her closely. So he knows some of these, you know, he's kind of followed her every moment um, for these last few hours. And O'Brien writes, so in building his reasoning, if such an instinctive process could be called by that name and and essentially using his certainties and the estimates, he comes to his conclusion. She had worn and she might be laying there right now, you know, kind of with her sails down, trying to escape detection here while the Sophie passes her in the darkness. Jack's sure of this. Um, And, you know, she is going to be making sail here for France. Jack's sure she's going to essentially be crossing the Sophie's wake as the Sophie continues to chase after her. And he knows that he's got to tack right now and work to windward. Uh, And if he does that, they should be able to see her under their lee at first light. He gives the order to tack in silence. And And there's this great line. O'Brien writes, the order and its form had a strangely powerful effect with as much certainty as though it had been a direct revelation. Jack knew that the men were wholly with him. And for a fleeting moment, a voice told him that he'd better be right or he would never enjoy this unlimited confidence again. That's a brilliant moment, isn't it? He's going to come back to this over and over again later on in the canon. That's that's the sentence that we use all the time in this book, isn't it? We're going to come back to this again and again. But mm-hmm. Jack's thought, and in some cases his doubt about whether he's really got the crew's confidence, is really important part of him feeling okay as a leader. Um, he's done a couple of important things, as well as just kind of you know, waving his sword and pointing, let's go that way. He's had to tell him to do something that's kind of counterintuitive, reducing sail to increase the speed of the ship. And he's had to do something that requires him to show that he's got really special powers of divination and navigation and problem solving and kind of figuring out in advance where the ship is going to be. And he's really growing and and gaining strength from the fact that they seem to be happy to follow him now. At least most of them do. Right, right. And it's it's a great change from a crew that doubts their captain's orders to a crew that are completely with him for now. And we're in this kind of stealthy chasing mode to get around this. Jack decides that he can't be bothered to ship deadlights in his cabin that would allow him to then show a candle. He's going to go into the guts of the ship. He's going to go to the gun room and hang out there. And it's an awkward and slightly uncomfortable visit for Jack because he gets a reminder of how isolated he is as the captain. The text says he was an intruder. He had upset their quiet sociability, dried up the purser's literary criticism, and interrupted the chess as effectually as an Olympian thunderbolt. And to top all of that, he gets a reminder that 
Stephen, his particular friend, is now almost as much of a member as the gunroom's social circle as he is of Jack's. And the text says Jack felt obscurely hurt. And after he had talked for a while, a dry, constrained interchange, it seemed to him, so very polite, he went up on deck again. And even though the crew might be with him in his navigation and his seamanship and his leadership, it's still the captain who is speaking when he's there in the gunroom. And they are speaking back to him only when spoken to. And therefore, it's got this very dry, overly polite tone. And Jack's really conscious of it. He's surprised that Dylan is here playing chess with Stephen, even though it's Dylan's watch below. And Jack's thinking, well, if I was Dylan, I would have been on, on deck. And Stephen, meanwhile, rather awkwardly steps in to try and help Jack. And he goes on deck, insisting that Jack should wear a woolen garment to counteract the falling damps. And Mike, between these three men, Jack and Stephen and Dylan, how, how many more times in this chapter, how many more times in this book are they going to misjudge and misunderstand each other's situations and priorities and emotions? Ha, Mike, this this day is yet young. Uh, before we move on, we've, we've talked a few times about the gun room. I should just point out here, um, if you, as a new reader of Patrick O'Brien, want to feel confident making your first steps in the online discourse, the online commentary about the Patrick O'Brien books, this is a good one to get straight in your head first. The gun room versus the ward room. Now, in this era, in the Regency era Royal Navy, officers messed in a place that was called the ward room if and only if the vessel was a ship of the line, a big fully rated two and three deck ship aboard a smaller vessel like a frigate or an even smaller vessel like a brig that place was called the gun room so in the modern british and american and as far as i know canadian and australian navies the place where officers mess is always called the wardroom these days regardless of what size the ship is hence this is a really important piece of period detail for patrick o'brien it's not the wardroom it's the gun room. Hence, there's a very venerable internet discussion group known as the gun room, the gun room of HMS Surprise, hmssurprise.org, and its associated mailing list server. This christening of a place as the gun room is a really important little token of Patrick O'Brien's period detail here. Yeah. And, and boy, I'll tell you, if you want to go back into some fascinating discussions about these books, the archives and, and the current discussions on the gun room are amazing. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah. So we've had all this, you know, we've gone through the night. O'Brien gives us this half hour by half hour, little details of everybody being so silent and everything. And the dawn is coming up and lo and behold, the prize is in sight. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a real strong reminder for me of the chase that happens in Master and Commander Far Side of the World. But it really reminded me of this remark by the master. The master says it had to be more than 100 sea miles and he brings us up on his tail. That's seamanship, Mr. Pullings. My God, that's seamanship. <laughs> so Jack's great leadership feat and great navigation and seamanship feat has paid off. And Mike, he's about to turn another trick here. He sets up this young guy, Moat. Moat is a teenager. He's young enough that his voice still cracks, but he's old enough to, I think, have already passed all the technical exams for a lieutenant. He's a, officially a master's mate. And Jack basically puts Moat in command of the rendezvous with this prize. She is just under our lee, says Jack, east by south. You may light up the sloop, Mr. Moat, and show our force. I don't want her to do anything foolish, such as firing a gun, perhaps hurting some of our people. Let me know when you have laid her aboard. 
With this, he retired, calling for a light and something hot to drink. And from his cabin, he heard Moet's voice, as we heard before, cracking and squeaking with the excitement of his prodigious command. He would happily have died for Jack. As under his orders, the Sophie bore up and spread her wings. I'm like, that's a, a really nice moment of very, uh, very astute delegation, absolutely winning the heart and the loyalty, quite rightly, of Moat by giving him this fantastic opportunity to command the ship through this maneuver. And even though all the way through the night, we've had this kind of dark, awkward, constrained, slightly bitter tone, as the morning comes, O'Brien's writing is all sweetness and light and caffeine for jack it says jack leant back now against the curved run of the stern window and let killick's version of coffee down by gulps into his grateful stomach and at the same time that its warmth spread through him so there ran a lively tide of settled pure unfevered happiness a happiness that another commander remembering his own first prize might have discerned from the log entry although it was not specifically mentioned there and here, Mike, we get, once again, a little snippet from the log. Half past ten, tacked. Eleven, in courses, reef topsail. A.M., cloudy and rain. Half past four, chase observed east by south, distance half a mile. Bore up and took possession of Ditto, which proved to be Limable Louise, French polaca laden with corn and general merchandise for set of about 200 tons, six guns and 19 men. Sent her with an officer and eight men to Mahon. And Mike, just like Patrick O'Brien, to have dug out not only a reference from logs that are authentic, he's got a reference from Admiralty Court papers that are authentic as well. There was a real ship called Limable Louise. She was 200 tons. She had a mixed cargo, not quite the same cargo as described here, but she was captured from the French by the British Navy in the American Revolutionary War about 15 years before the uh, the O'Brien timeline here. But great little real world reference here. So Jack is delighted. His payoff for all his patience, his preparation, his seeming capers early in the chapters, you know, is complete. You know, he's got a prize. He can get an advance on the prize money from this valuable capture and make an early distribution to the crew so they can have a little drunken run ashore. And, you know, it really unites that crew and unites him with them. And meanwhile, you know, he's thinking, He's going to be able to buy some gunpowder and he can exercise the great gun some more. And he's sitting there drinking some of the captured wine, this great wine. Ian, I, I think you've had some of this before. I've not tasted this. Yeah, Priorato. I've had it in a wine bar in Madrid. I think it's, I always thought it was Catalan from the name of it. But anyhow, it's it's really delicious. Um, I remember sitting in his wine bar drinking Priorato thinking, this is really, really great. I've got to get some when I get home. Really, very difficult to get hold of, at least in British wine shops. So if anybody knows of a source, let us know. Um, maybe it's just as as it perhaps should be that they keep some of the good stuff for the locals. <laughs> right. Always. Selling it to the Brits. Uh-huh. Well, you know, here's Jack nodding off under the influence of this wine and, and, and you know, sleepless night chasing this thing. You know, and chatting back and forth to Stephen in just a just a beautiful scene as he's talking about this. And and Ian, you might take us through where's Jack planning to head here? Well, they're they're continuing on this cruise that they've been granted by um Lord Keith, who, by the way, is going to be kept sweet by his share of all of this prize money that Jack's starting right. to send back to Mahon. Um they tell us that they plan to have a swing north to Cape Creus. I think that's how you say it. Uh, Cape Creus is very close to Colliura, which was the O'Brien neighborhood, as we know, and um, around and along the coast of Catalonia. 
as long as he can keep up with his water supplies. And he kind of drifts off to sleep thinking, ah, oh, water is going to be the key thing. And we get straight into the next encounter. And the next encounter with is with a brig called the Cloma. And by the way, another real reference here, Cloma was the name of a real Danish brig. Um, that was part of the story of Lord Cochrane's first cruise aboard the Sophie's alter ego, the brig Speedy in the uh, in the real life escapades of Thomas Cochrane. But we'll come back to more about what Cochrane did with the, the Cloma later on. This brig, the Cloma, we learn is almost identical to the Sophie, but she's wearing a Danish flag, so she's an ally. So therefore, she's the object of a social call rather than a, a broadside and a potential prize. In another bit of uh, scatological wordplay for Patrick O'Brien, the captain's called Ole Bugger. Uh, and that's a name that Jack doesn't choose to repeat out loud on his quarter deck. Um, Ola's uh, pronunciation gets the Patrick O'Brien comedy accent treatment. So alongside Scottish people, Danish people now get uh, get the, their accents lampooned slightly in the text here. And we get some intelligence in return for a, a case or so of this nice priorata wine. We get some intelligence from Captain Bulger that there's a French prize just over the horizon to the north. She's headed to Agde, halfway to Marseille. And so that's the cue for the Sophie to head north in pursuit of this potential French prize. Mike, I think that's our cue to head to the bar in pursuit of something nice and red and Spanish. And uh, we'll all be right back after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. So welcome back, everybody. We hope you enjoyed a glass of Prerato or whatever you had on your wine rack there. We want to give a special shout out. You heard the message in there about our Patreon supporters. We also want to say that we appreciate the feedback that we get online via social media as well. Big shout out to listener Andy Hall, who's shared on the Facebook Aubrey Matron Appreciation Society a little update to the world about how we are digging back into the Master and Commander chapters at a slower pace. Um, thank you, Andy, for that. We hope that you're all enjoying it so far. If you haven't already done so, then you can find us online. We have our own page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash lubbers hole. You can find us on Twitter. We are at whole lubbers. And you can find us in a few of the places, as I mentioned online, where the Aubrey Matron books are getting talked about. So, Mike, there's not much drama this time. There's no great tension as we find and encounter this, this chase. No particular hurdles for master's mate Moat as the citoyen durant as she's called kind of calmly gives up here um it turns out that she gave up without a murmur because she was carrying two precious and delicate cargoes first she's carrying barrel upon barrel of gunpowder and jack purloins this in the name of efficiency only just this side of looting i would say i love right. this you know <laughs> slightly tongue-in-cheek thing he says well there's a lot of damaged stuff aboard that sloop he says to the gunner i can see it from here we shall have to take it away to prevent further spoiling and in the name of the same um, appropriation he grabs the uh, french vessel's launch as well so the first precious cargo was the gunpowder the second precious cargo was the master's young pregnant wife who's gone into labor just as the ship is taken. And Mike, there's, there's lots of comedy extracted from the horror and the ignorance of this male crew who have no familiarity at all, most of them, with the with the, the nature and the sounds and signs of childbirth. 
uh, as they hear the, the groans and the shrieks of this woman going through labor. James, says the text, was as stout-hearted as the next man, but the continuous groaning just behind the cabin bulkhead and the awful, hoarse, harsh, animal quality of the cries that broke out through the groaning and the huge volume terrified him. He gazed at the white-faced, distracted, tear-stained husband with a face as appalled as his. And my, uh, poor James, representing for a moment all of us unreconstructed males who back in the 18th and 19th century wouldn't have had anything to do with childbirth. Uh, later on, Jack himself says, God love us, what a terrible cry. I am truly sorry to inflict this upon you, Dylan. He's meaning that Dylan's going to take command of the uh, the prize. But you see how it is. And finally, O'Brien shares this perspective with the whole of the crew. The Sophies, he says, even the family men looked guilty, concerned, apprehensive. The dreadful, unremitting shrieks went on and on. And when Stephen appeared at the rail to call out that he must stay aboard, Jack bowed to the obscure justice of this deprivation. And Mike, the, the, the only one of them, besides the woman herself, who regards this as, as regular and routine and all in a day's work is, of course, Stephen. Now, my friend, he says to the captain, these buckets would be best over the side, and then I recommend you to lie down for a while. Monsieur has a son. <laughs> so, as, as nobody has ever said in the Patrick O'Brien books, Mazel tov. <laughs> right, right. And, and, and wish that they would. <laughs> and let's dig back into boat names here. Uh, Citoyen Durand, um, the name of this particular ship, was there a real-life Durand that this might have uh, might have related to? It, there really was, which was fascinating, because this one was a little hard to dig up here. But in fact, there is a citizen, a, a citizen, Margaret Durand, and um, she was one of France's leading feminists. You know, she started as a stage actress. She became a, a very good journalist working for Francis Topps newspaper and, and was actually sent to cover an international feminist congress in, in supposedly to write a humorous article for this top French newspaper. But she came away a changed woman. She became a leading suffragette who thought, you know, women shouldn't just have the vote, but they should be part of the debate. They you know, she actually stood for office. She founded an all-woman newspaper with some of the leading women writers of her time, kind of championed women first in their fields throughout France and all sorts of professions, and, and found when she needed you know, printing and, and was not accommodated, she created the first all-woman's printing group. She also was, I believe, quite a beauty, had a pet lion, uh, was known very well in, in kind of high social circles. So she she really raised the profile of feminism in France and Europe to, to a, a really unprecedented at that time level of respectability. Uh, she has a bibliothèque, a, a library named after her, uh, right in a specialized Paris library that houses all of her sources. So, of course, um, you know, Patrick O'Brien, right? Yeah. And fascinating little bit of juxtaposition here. Assuming that she was the Durand that he was referring to or thinking of when he came up with this name for this boat, and we're getting into the idea of um, rights and freedom and representation and democracy and, and feminism. And this is all in our minds if you choose to dig for it, just as we get into this conversation that's coming up between Stephen and James Dillon. And Mike, I'd I, I love this passage. This is for me. This is probably the the character heart of the book. 
And Stephen and Dylan have edged around each other so far because they've been in public. They've been in the presence of uh, people in front of whom they can't really be transparent about their past political activities and their allegiances and so on. They're both Irishmen and they both know each other. And Stephen has already hinted about the distaste that they both have for the idea of an informer and a particular kind of informer as well and a renegade. And I've really, really enjoyed digging back into this conversation here. So with the French crew back on the Sophie as prisoners, with just the sleeping French master and his wife for company, Stephen and James Dillon get to talk alone and in private. Stephen says, It is only now that we have the opportunity of speaking to one another. I looked forward to this time with great impatience, and now that it has come, I find that in fact there is little to be said. Perhaps nothing at all, said James. I believe we understand each other perfectly. (sighs) And despite that opening exchange, of course, the reality is different, and they talk and talk right through the night. Um, They recalled the last time that they had seen each other, and we get invited to find out about the uh, the Irish uprising of 1798 just by the dropping of the names. So let's let's dig behind the names that they get dropped here. Um, Stephen had been meeting with Lord Edward Fitzgerald, who in the real timeline of history, Irish history, was a leading proponent within the movement of United Irishmen for Irish independence through insurrection, through a French-assisted insurrection against Great Britain. In real life, Edward Fitzgerald was fatally wounded on the eve of the intended uprising during his arrest. And Stephen remembers the early days of the United Irishmen before this insurrection and how they had been really passionately attached to liberty. He said that the word liberty glowed with meaning. They talked also about unity as a cause, but Stephen was was sceptical about the group of strange bedfellows that were brought together. He talked about priests, deists, atheists and Presbyterians, visionary Republicans, utopists, and men who merely disliked the Beresfords. And Stephen, at that time, had been full of zeal for humanity at large and sufficiently full of Republicanism in those early days, um, but really not moderate enough for Fitzgerald, the fomenter of this uh, this French-assisted insurrection. And People are disliking the Beresfords. Mike, who were the Beresfords and why might they have been disliked? Right. Well, you know, on the one hand, you know, from the perspective of Dylan and Stephen's conversation here, they're, they're a very powerful Irish family, kind of multiple MPs in succession, lots of uh, ownership interests and things that opposed to emancipation, the emancipation of Ireland. But e- even a little bit deeper, um, you know, the, the father was a guy who'd become a member of the Privy Council of Great Britain, also kind of a revenue minister in Ireland. So had a real, you know, some people called him sort of the King of Ireland and he was opposed by some popular politicians. So there was, there were reasons to, to kind of have some resentment here against this guy. Although, uh, you know, very helpful in a lot of architecture and, and great things in Ireland, but the son um, was also thought to have, uh, it was in his his kind of writing uh, studio there that uh, interrogated uh, United Irishmen there. So, you know, definitely in, in popular politics, they were opposed by some people for some reasons, and certainly in the United Irishmen, a very vehement dislike. And it's fascinating. We're going to go into quite a deep and sort of nuanced picture of 
the politics of rebellion against the the, the, the colonization, the taking over, if you like, of the Irish state by the British Crown, the British government. And we're learning that it's not true necessarily to think that Ireland was just uh, an island full of Catholics kept in poverty by ruthless British overlords, although there were ruthless British overlords and there were plenty of Catholics in poverty, but there was a society that itself was still pretty divided and pretty diverse, and there were these different Protestant sects, and there were landowners, and this was potentially a a really, really messy situation. And I'm not for a minute going to say that and anything good was done about it by the British government. But I'm going to say that it was not a simple matter of one repressed block of people rising up. This was a matter of a coalition being built within what you might call middle-class society in Ireland. Right. And at the time, Dylan said that he had been in favour of emancipation because emancipation covered all non-Anglican faiths. Um, so Presbyterians would have been in favour of emancipation just as much as Catholics, for example, of you know, religious freedom in general. Anybody who wasn't an Anglican, who wasn't part of uh, following the, the Church of the Church of Ireland slash Church of England, was legally excluded from political and economic life and from military service. So Dylan was in favour of reform of that aspect of society, but he wasn't a Republican. He wasn't for overturning the monarchy altogether. Um, he thought, he says, that a republic in Ireland would become little better than a democracy, in his words, and that a Catholic republic would be ludicrous. Is Dylan saying that I only want middle-class, upright Irish Catholics like me to be in charge and that, you know, absolute rule is still okay? Um, is it that he wanted, you know, the, the, the Irish gentleman class to stay in power? Or is it just that he's saying he, he wants to separate the idea of democracy and representation and liberty of that sort from the idea of liberty and freedom to worship? And I think this is a really, really great question. You know, perhaps then and certainly these days, we tend to bundle together republicanism and religious freedom and nationalism and self-determination as all one thing. And if you want one of them, you've got to want all of them. And one of the things that I really appreciate about this chapter and about lots of the conversations that we have um, through the character of Stephen later on in the canon and his politics is that it represents a more nuanced picture and that these things, these different kinds of freedom and these different kinds of change in society can be separate from each other. And I'm not sure. I don't think Dylan was guilty of straightforward chauvinism and self-interest on the behalf of uh, middle-class Irish people, but I think he was saying the problem that we had right then in Ireland was religious emancipation. Other things to do with changing society might have to be solved another day through through other means. Well, you know, I think you're absolutely right, Ian. And what we're seeing is just such a nuanced view and 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 an insight just through these two individuals of how diverse this group of United Irishmen was and how wildly different things were, were kind of motivating them and the different ends they were trying to achieve all in the same things. We see Stephen kind of growing up in part of this movement, that part that wants, you know, insurrection and, and kind of overturn. And, and we've got kind of in the beginning of this discussion, this test that Stephen took about were you a true United uh, Irishman or not. And, and we see Dylan in a very different group, his committee kind of not at all about this, you know, let's take the revolution from America and France and bring it to Ireland here with the help of the French. So Stephen, in fact, by the time he had been in this group for a while, had changed himself. And, and he's telling Dylan about that, that in fact, the last day that he saw Dylan, who was also coming to see this Fitzgerald, Stephen was there trying to persuade him not to go through with his plans for this rising. But Stephen said he was opposed to violence anyway. But but setting that aside, 
he thought that what they were trying to do and how they were trying to do it and knowing all the informers that were in their organization, that there was just too much risk and it would kind of result in the ruin of their cause that, you know, there were certain goals they wanted to meet. Doing it this way was not going to get at that. And the death and ruin of many of the men involved and their families. And, And Stephen, you know, really passionately describes how he was trying to channel kind of his early essence of belief in this movement to get Fitzgerald to listen to him. And he talks about how much spirit he expended that day more than any other day, trying to argue as if he still believed enough to get Fitzgerald to listen to him. But Stephen's telling Dylan, you know, in truth, and and O'Brien writes, I no longer cared for any cause or any theory of government on earth. I would have not lifted a finger for any nation's independence, fancied or real, and yet I had to reason with as much ardor as though I were filled with the same enthusiasm as in the first days of the revolution, when we were all overflowing with virtue and love. Um, So again, you know, Stephen's like, I think he kind of like his wanting to go across to the plague ship. It's just you know, my God, I've got to do something to save all these people. And and let me see if I can say something that Fitzgerald won't understand. But um, it, it's, it's not going to work. And Stephen realizes it's not going to work. He realizes that Fitzgerald is really, you know, kind of paying no attention to him. Yeah. And Dylan, I don't think he's convinced by this. I, I think Dylan's a, a more wholehearted, more instinctive rebel. Um, or at least he he was at that time at that part of his life, and he said, "Well, maybe you could have been helpful with it you know, with the sort of the more moderate um, aspects of this cause." And Stephen said he would not. He'd been chilled by what happened in the French Revolution. He'd been chilled by seeing the the consequences of the Irish Rebellion of seventeen ninety eight, the brutality, the cruelty, and masses of men on both sides doing unspeakable things to each other. And he says he's now sick of men in masses and my this quote is one that sticks with me forever i love this reasoning and real kind of polemic that stephen brings to his perspective about what what he's interested in and why he's interested in it he says that he would not work to reform parliament or even bring about the millennium which by the way in in revelations is the, the thousand year reign of christ supposed to mean a utopia a period of good government and prosperity he wouldn't work at all to bring about transformational change like that. I speak only for myself, mind, said Stephen. It is my own truth alone, but man as part of a movement or a crowd is indifferent to me. He is inhuman. I have nothing to do with nations or nationalism. The only feelings I have for what they are are for men as individuals. My loyalties, such as they may be, are to private persons alone. Patriotism will not do, says Dylan. My dear creature, I am done with all debate, but you know as well as I, patriotism is a word, and one that generally comes to mean either my country right or wrong, which is infamous, or my country is always right, which is imbecile. And that's, for me, Mike, one of the best turned moments of political argument in the whole canon. Um, if if there was a fictitious O'Brien, Aubrey, Maturin, presidential campaign this would be paragraph three i think of the stump speech <laughs> right right and this whole this phrase my country right or wrong has got a bit of history to it um the phrase was 
um, used in a speech, a toast actually proposed by Stephen Decatur. Decatur, who we talked about a few books ago in connection with the War of 1812, Decatur, an American officer, um, proposed it as a toast in 1812. Actually, it might have been after 1812 to do with the War of 1812. So actually, after the strictly defined timeline that we're in now, but never mind. Stephen Decatur proposes this toast, meaning America, my country, right or wrong, um, that was picked up in turn by a senator called Carl Schurz in 1871 who espoused the same thing, basically expressing my country right or wrong, meaning an unvarnished, jingoistic, I, I support my country no matter whether it's right or wrong. Um, this may, in fact, have been inspired by a phrase that Edmund Burke had used back in 1790 about how you've got to love your country, and if you don't love your country, then you've got to make it lovely or lovable. And then the jingoistic aspect of this was kind of turned over and criticised in, in typically kind of sceptical um, style by the British author G.K. Chesterton in 1901. And Chesterton anticipates what O'Brien might have been thinking of writing 70 years later. Chesterton says, My country, right or wrong, is a thing that no patriot would think of saying, except in a desperate case. It is like saying, My mother, drunk or sober. <laughs> doesn't say very much for Cheston's view of his mother, but I, I really love the idea of picking apart this phrase and doubting and challenging unvarnished jingoism, which is absolutely, I think, where Stephen is. So, Mike, as we, we've gone quite deeply into our conversations about Ireland and Stephen and Dylan. We've got the chance next week, I think, to hear some more about the history of that time and those events. We've learned so much about the United Irishman, and, and I would love to know more. And you've lined us up a great authority on that subject. Absolutely. We're going to be sitting down next week to talk about 1798 with historian and entertainer and all-round funny guy, Paddy Cullivan. Looking forward to that. Yeah, for sure. And talking about the political and talking about how Maturin's allegiance is to persons rather than institutions, I think, gets us to the point of turning the conversation now in the direction of other connections to other people around, and in particular, to Dylan's connection or otherwise with Jack Aubrey. Yeah, because Dylan actually says, well, you know, he, he notes that after Stephen just said that his, you know, his uh, affection is for people, his, you know, his kind of... Uh, loyalty is to people alone. You know, Dylan says that, you know, he notes that Stephen is very fond of Captain Aubrey. And and Stephen says, you know, he's sorry that Dylan is not and and asks why. And, you know, he says, you know, he's kind of like in between Dylan and Aubrey, and he has great esteem for both of them. And and Dylan is a little bit flippant at first. He says, well, perhaps it's because Aubrey has a command and, and I don't. And then, you know, Stephen uses this Latin tag ian uh non amote sadidi <laughs> yeah non amote sadidi so it this is actually an epigram from what we call martial the, the roman poet but it becomes a bit some say apocryphal story later out of the annals of oxford and and becomes almost you know it's used as almost a children's nursery rhyme here that it's it's kind of this in, in the nursery rhyme form it's, I do not like thee, Dr. Fell, the reason why I cannot tell. But this I know and know full well. I do not like thee, Dr. Fell. So <laughs> supposedly this guy's going to get kicked out of Oxford for bad behavior. And he says, well, if you can translate Marshall's epigram, I'll let you stay. And he translates it to say how he feels about the guy who's imposing this punishment here. But not Sabidi, the original target of this line about. But really, it's getting at 
Stephen's saying, are you just saying it and you don't really know why? And and Dylan says, no, no, no. It's uh, it's it's Aubrey's eagerness for prizes, for profit, like a starving privateer rather than for honor. He couldn't believe that you know the captain wouldn't leave the deck all night while chasing this palaka uh, versus chasing a man of war. And, and it's fascinating because we remember Jack saying he couldn't believe Dylan left the deck, even though he wasn't on watch during the same chase. These guys see the world differently. And then, yeah. you know, and then Dylan says, you know, and then right after we catch this prize, boom, he's off exercising the great guns again. And, you know, Stephen is kind of uh, saying, well, you know, couldn't the great guns be used for honorable purposes? But he keeps prodding Dylan to speak his mind. And then Dylan finally kind of steps on it. He says, well, you know, Aubrey keeps encouraging this pederast marshal, and that's indecent, he says. And I, it, it kind of it alludes that he could use much worse words for it. And Stephen tells Dylan that, look, Aubrey's completely unaware of Marshall's affections, if you will. And um, Stephen's trying to tell him a little bit about Aubrey, that he's, you know, he's not as as kind of aware of people on some level, like others are, and that and that Aubrey thinks pederasts only trouble, and this quote is powder monkeys and choir boys. Um, so that you know, and, and this gets back to our discussion, you know, a chapter or so ago about this idea of homosexuality versus you know uh, pedophiles here, and and how it's kind of gotten you know mixed up here. But uh, Dylan. And Stephen then continued this discussion as, you know, as Stephen's telling Dylan about how he tried to educate Jack a little. Ian, you might want to want to take this here. <laughs> well, we, we kind of get this serious conversation descends a little bit in, into butt humor here. I made a circuitous attempt at enlightening him a little, but he looked very knowing. He's talking about Jack here. He looked very knowing and said, don't tell me about rears and vices. I have been in the Navy all my life. And uh, James Dillon replies, then surely he must be wanting a little in penetration. And Stephen says, James, I trust there was no mens rea in that remark. And mens rea, mens rea, oh, it's almost too crude to point out. Um, Mens rea, the Latin tag, uh, is a reference to criminal intent, a, a guilty mind. But... O'Brien, even in the depths of this very serious conversation, can't resist what looks like a, a, a pretty scatological pun. Yeah. So but why is sodomy always the butt of these jokes? Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. I, I kept reading, you know, we, we had the goat and tea or not tea after the sodomy incident. <laughs> the last one, we had Ole Bugger earlier. We, now we've got this mens rea. And I kept saying, you know, another sodomy joke. What a pain in the ass. Boom, boom. <laughs> but I guess they do get you in the end. <laughs> oh, Mike, this is high quality material. I never knew you had a, you'd done a tour doing stand up in, in, in fraternity houses. That was that's amazing. <laughs> this is this is this is what you get for listening to this chapter five times through Patrick Tall walking around the farm. It's like, wait, no, 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 I can't take the sodomy joke one more time. But luckily, we're now perhaps past them. We've put them to an end. <laughs> Maybe then, uh, by the way, Stephen and James are a long way down a bottle of really good quality brandy by this point. Dylan goes back up on deck to check on the crew and maybe the conversation is winding down. And he comes back in a sort of conciliatory tone. He says, I am too touchy, I know, but sometimes when you're surrounded with proddies, which is 
you know, crude slang for Protestants. When you're surrounded with them and you hear their silly underbred cant, you fly out. And since you cannot fly out in one direction, you fly out in another. It is a continual tension, as you ought to know if anyone. Dylan asks if Stephen knew he was a Catholic. Stephen said that he'd known that some of Dylan's family were Catholics, but that he had imagined that it would put Dylan in a difficult position with the oath that he would have to swear in order to have a lieutenant's commission. And we heard earlier on that the, the, the oath that you have to swear involves utterly renouncing the Pope, among other things. Not in the least, said James. My mind is perfectly at ease as far as that is concerned. And then we get a little bit of the inward dialogue of Stephen. That is what you think, my poor friend, said Stephen to himself, pouring out another glass to hide his expression. And Dylan seemed to be out about to discuss this some more. And they, they turn back to trivial reminiscing about old days and they finish up the bottle. And Dylan goes back up on deck again. And when he returns this time, he says uh, he's also upset, maybe not having been promoted for his action in the dart. And he asks Stephen, who was it who was said to have earned more by his prick than his practice? And Mike, the, the, the question's not answered directly in the text, but it's answered when we dig a little bit, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's seldom that it's being talked about, but what he doesn't say is that it, it is a line about John Selden, but the line about John Selden, who who supposedly slept with the Countess of Kent with the full knowledge of her husband, and, and after her husband, the Earl's death, Selden married the Countess, this was said by an English antiquarian, a guy named John Aubrey, who wrote this, <laughs> yeah, this little you know book full of little biographies called Brief Lives. So it's it's very much Dylan bringing up this line which was written by a John Aubrey, and he's taking a poke at our John Jack Aubrey, I, I think suggesting here that perhaps Aubrey was promoted because of his affair with Molly Hart, and maybe he's suggesting that, you know, that, that you know, Captain Hart is okay with that and therefore pushed, you know, Aubrey up for promotion, but not Dylan. Yeah, and I don't think Dylan is in a mood to have any of his of his points or his you know, his whataboutisms kind of pushed back by Stephen. He's pretty sure that he's allowed to right. object to Aubrey on a bunch of different grounds, some of which are arguable, but some of which don't have to be arguable. Yeah. Stephen does come back and tell Dylan that, you know, in Jack Aubrey's case, that that consideration is irrelevant. And and I think we, we, we think that Stephen probably knows that Jack and Hart are at each other's throats. Hart is not working in Jack's interest here, right? Um, no, but, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But Dylan does add that, you know, he really, really wants to get promoted and that serving under a prize hunting captain is not the most direct route to promotion. So hang on. We've had the fling that um, maybe it's because I'm a Catholic. Maybe it's because I lack interest. Maybe it's because um, I didn't get recognition for the action in the dart. Maybe it's because Jack is all about the money and I'm all about the honor. And Stephen is going to not let this one go either. He says, well, it's easy for a rich man to despise money. And Dylan protests that he has all these, this land that's actually worthless. It's bog and mountain. And Stephen comes up with his great rejoinder. I have never yet known a man admit that he was either rich or asleep. Perhaps the poor man and the wakeful man have some great moral advantage. So he's not having any of this. And he goes on to say, well, Jack is brave. 
Um, he could lead them to glorious and remarkable actions. And Dylan is doubting this, and he's willing to cite the galley in evidence. Jack had turned back from pursuing the galley to go back and look after the rest of the convoy, and Dylan had taken that really badly. Stephen says that this was Jack being prudent and doing his duty, and Dylan just goes back to the idea that he, Dylan, wants to be promoted and says, I want no republic. I stand by settled, established institutions and by authority, so long as it is not tyranny. All I ask is an independent parliament that represents the responsible men of the kingdom and not merely a squalid parcel of placemen and place seekers. Given that, I am perfectly happy with the English connection, perfectly happy with the two kingdoms. I can drink the loyal toast without choking, I do assure you. So he's he's really not willing to let Jack be seen as having any kind of prior claim or higher claim to duty. Dylan is all about duty and honour, and he's really still willing to see Jack as a little bit tainted by this idea of being a prize seeker. Well, it's it's dawn. You know, Dylan puts out the light and invites Stephen up on deck to see some interesting birds off the coast of Menorca there. And then Dylan adds, you remember when when this whole conversation started, you know, Stephen said, you know, well, you know, now that we've got this moment, there's there's not much to say. But Dylan ends it saying, I cannot tell what possessed me to speak so rancorously. Um, and, and he's looking unhappy and bewildered. He says, I do not think I have ever done so before. I've not expressed myself well, clumsy, inaccurate, not what I meant, nor what I meant to say. We understood one another better before ever I opened my mouth. And these are the closing words of chapter five. Wow. And again, we've said this before. It's a really, really great moment. It's fantastically written. Really great characterization. Takes us deep into the heart of these two men. I hear what James Dillon says. We understood each better each other better before we started the conversation. For me as a reader, I think I understand James Dillon. I understand Stephen Maturin. Not completely yet, but a heck of a lot better for having been with them as they've had this conversation. And there are plenty of moments in life where maybe um, we've got the opportunity to really open up to somebody else and perhaps don't listen to the words that we ourselves are saying. And other people get to learn more about us and we miss the opportunity for a bit of self-learning, a bit of self-knowledge and some perspective. Not that Stephen Maturin's career is going to be glitteringly laden with perfect self-perception and uh, and perfect perspective. No, 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 not by a long way. Uh, but Mike, here's the thing. So I'm really fascinated by this chapter, really fascinated by learning more about James Dillon and Stephen Maturin. Whenever I think about the char- characters of the Aubrey Maturin novels, I think I would be very happy to bump into Jack Aubrey and or Stephen Maturin. You know, at the bar, at the train station, at a dinner party, in a, in a weird, fantastic world where I get to meet the heroes of books that I've read, I would love to spend time in company with Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin, either or alone. James Dillon has got lots in common with Stephen, lots in common with Jack Aubrey, and he wants some great things. He wants honour, and he wants emancipation and freedom for members of Irish society, and he wants to do many, many right things, but I don't like him. <laughs> Right, right. And, and O'Brien has done a very skillful job of making him really not very likable and not very empathetic. He's not unkind. He's not ignorant. He's got some really fair criticisms of Jack Aubrey and his conduct. It's totally forgivable that James Dillon is conflicted. You know, we're, we're all a bit conflicted, but I still don't like him. 
what do you think? Help me restore the likability of James Dillon. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's funny because I really wanted to like James Dillon, and I did like him for a while. There were little niggling things, but I think when we got here, um, you know, I really, I, I think so many times there are stories that we tell ourselves, yeah. and the stories that we tell ourselves drive our emotions, and those emotions drive our actions, and we need to change those stories. And I think this was... God, this was one of those great moments where, you know, they're both drinking. If they could remember what they said, <laughs> they've had a lot to drink and they've been up all night. And and I remember these dorm room discussions that went all night. <laughs> you know, even when we tried to write it down and still couldn't read our handwriting, but we had solved all the problems <laughs> of the world. But, you know, if if Dylan could have gotten just some a little bit of insight here, God, he is, he's a, a, you know, terribly conflicted. And I think it's really hard to be around people who are so driven in their view of the world by these stories that they tell themselves and unwilling to examine those stories. And I think Stephen was once again, you know, it's almost the mirror image. I'd, I've talked to Fitzgerald and I was trying to get him to see things. Now I'm talking to Dylan and I'm trying to get him to see things. And, you know, um, I, I think here Stephen was not trying to act like he believed what Dylan believed. Clearly they, they thought very differently about the Irish uprising and what their aims were. But, you know, you know, I, I'd love to have a beer with Stephen, with Jack, with Stephen and Jack. I'd love to have a beer with Stephen and Jack and Dylan. I think that's the world that Stephen wants to live in. But right now I'm having a hard time thinking about doing that with Dylan. Yeah. Gosh. And, and it raises all sorts of questions about where this is going to lead, because the relationship between these three men is clearly, it's important because we've begun to care about them as characters. It's important because they're... Um, closeted in together on this warship that's got to do some warlike things and put itself into danger. And how are they going to help that? We already know that their motivations cross over. Even right. Jack and Stephen have got some different motivations right. and some different things that they want from life. It raises some really, really fascinating questions. But, but besides the fact that it's great writing, besides the fact that O'Brien has done a great job of, of painting these character pictures for us with really just dialogue, with just this conversation, without you know lots and lots of very, very expository kind of backstory stuff we've had action we've had conversations about history and social change and liberty and philosophy and politics and we've we've had emotional insights and we've had self-deception and reflection huh where do we go next we're, we're headed back to menorca we're headed back to mahon james dylan is headed straight back to mahon with this prize and presumably the sophie is going to be on her way back to mahon at some point there's still time and miles left on the cruise that they're having at the behest right. of, uh, of Lord Keith. Jack has got plans for more places he'd like to sail to and more places he'd like to hole up and ambush some prizes. We've got this brewing tension between Jack and Dylan, perhaps between uh, Dylan and Stephen himself. Is Dylan going to keep making Jack the bad guy for the disappointments right. in his life? Or is there something that Jack's goodwill and leadership and seamanship and good fortune, something that Jack can use to pull this relationship out of the bag? Ah, oh, it's fascinating. Yeah. And, and can, can, you know, can Stephen broker some peace between these guys it, <laughs> and help yeah. them to see themselves and see each other a little more clearly? Yeah. He's, he's on the, that. yeah. He's aboard the ship as an outsider, as the kind of Greek chorus. Maybe he can do that for them. Right. <sighs> well, I don't know. I think there's only one thing for it. What do you say, Ian, to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien next week? With all my heart. Mm-hmm.
joke one more time but luckily we're now perhaps past them we've put them to an end 